One Week Season. going on inner circle fam jm to win here welcome to the week 10 edition of the tuesday inner circle podcast tuesday segment where we typically focus on big picture stuff training stuff often through the lens of the week behind us or the week ahead of us real quickly on the week behind us that was one of the more strange DFS weekends we will ever have, where the, I believe the third highest scoring wide receiver on the slate was Marquise Brown, who put up like 22 or 23 points and needed the very end of fourth quarter in overtime just to get there. I believe Alameda Zacchaeus was number two or number four in wide receiver scoring on three targets. Just one of those types of weeks. One of the things that we can take from a week like that is A, an ability to look at our own process and assess things through the lens of process rather than through the lens of results, recognizing that some weeks are weirder than others. And so being able to recognize like, okay, maybe I didn't have the results I wanted to, maybe I had the results I wanted to, but again, let's look at process and see, were we playing differently from the field? Were we giving ourselves a path to a first place finish? Were we separating the chalk that's being created just because chalk gets created every week from the plays that we actually liked optimally building in a bubble and so on and so forth. Uh, I just said A, I'm trying to think what B was going to be there. Uh, I guess B is basically just saying that when we recognize that there are NFL weeks like that, we are able to better position ourselves to take advantage of NFL weeks like that. Now, one of the things that I think that we have done a good job expanding our focus on this year and probably last year as well, but that we can continue to get better at as a site, as a site that's focused on DFS training, is the difference between different contest types and what we should be looking for in different contest types. So recognizing who among our contributors plays what types of contests. So for example, if you're reading Sonic stuff, he makes this clear, but oftentimes he's talking about MME play, large field MME play at that. Xandamir plays a lot of MME on the main slate. Mike plays a mixture of like his main core focus, which he breaks down every week in the reflection scroll, is his three entry max play, but he also plays MME alongside that. Uh, Hilo is pretty strictly MME and single entry. And this year I've been three entry max for the most part, but over the last couple of weeks, kind of shifting down to single entry, especially smaller field single entry play. So we should probably continue focusing on that, right? In terms of, okay, here's what you need to be doing if you are playing MME. Here's what you need to be doing in three max contests with 10,000 plus entries and so on and so forth. One of the reasons why we don't drill super deeply into that is because if we spend an hour and a half in a segment like this speaking to the single entry players or three max players, then we're also spending that hour and a half not speaking to the MME players who might be listening in. Vice versa, if we're speaking to MME 
then we're not speaking to the, the smaller field players. But I think that that's something that gets lost, right? And I've talked back to that Friday night show that I used to do with Levitan and Hefe, where we would get on that show, talk for an hour about plays and favorite plays, and what we we're looking at, and never once discuss the types of tournaments we were in. So Levitan's focused primarily on cash games. I was at the time primarily focused on single entry, small field tournaments. Hefe was primarily focused on qualifiers, sometimes smaller field qualifiers, sometimes larger field qualifiers. And there are different things that we should be doing in each of those contest types. So I wanted to say that as sort of a backdrop of what we're going to be talking about this week. But what we're going to be talking about this week, as alluded to last week, is part two of this bubble building process. So if you joined Inner Circle last week uh, on our rest of season discounted price, which I'm guessing most of you who are new, that's why you're new. So what we did two weeks ago, which the rest of you would have been here to hear this, but what we did two weeks ago was we talked about the value of coming to our own conclusions about the slate before we have any outside noise. And by outside noise, I don't just mean things that are being said on whatever site you read content on, but also Vegas lines, projections, anything like that, anything that can cloud your view of what a game could look like and how a game could shape up. Last week, we had Matthew Petrich on talking about his 250K win from week eight. And after week eight, right, week eight, we did this whole bubble build process. And we uh, basically what we did was we walked through my bubble building process and what that looks like, basically to give you an idea of what this might look like for you. Maybe 90% of what I do is overlaps with what will make sense to you. Maybe only 50% of what I do will overlap with what makes sense to you. But the idea is to give you a look at what it can be like to build in a bubble and get a sense of the, the slate on your own. So we talked about that two weeks ago. And then last week, when Matthew Petrich hopped on to talk about his, his quarter million dollar weekend, he talked about the things that he had found at the front end of that week. And the conclusions he'd come to about certain games that were then backed up throughout the week from things that we'd said on the site or things that he'd found in other places. And there's so much value in that of finding your baseline of what you think about the slate, because optimally we're building differently than the field. Optimally, we're not just flocking to the same chalk that the field is flocking to. We're going to talk about one of these pieces here in a moment, and you can kind of get a sense of what we're saying about chalk forms no matter what. And a lot of times it feels like chalk that you have to play. It feels like, man, if this guy goes for a big game, everybody's on him. And if this guy goes for a big game, I'm going to get buried because I don't have him. And this is such a clear and obvious top play. And that's because we're all looking at it through the lens of why this play could succeed instead of looking at it through the lens of why this play could fail. So when you Start your week on your own. When you start your week getting a sense of all the games on your own, it becomes much easier for you to build conviction in the places where you're seeing something and the field isn't. So maybe that is the second highest total game on the slate, the third highest total game on the slate, and it's just sort of going overlooked by the field. 
Or maybe it's a game with the fourth or fifth highest total. Maybe it's even a game where the over-under has been dropping. We've had a couple of those, Cleveland and, and the Chargers. That game total where that game ended up being 49 to 42 or 47 to 42, that game total was dropping. It dropped three and a half points by the end of the week. We had the Bengals and Ravens one where the Bengals put up 41 points. That's another one where that game total was dropping as the week moved along. And so finding those places where you can say, well, I still have conviction in this game because of what I'm seeing or because of the broader range of outcomes that I think is here than what this over under implies, that can basically help us to build differently with a high level of confidence on plays that we actually like instead of just trying to be different in order to be different. So I am going to spend, it'll probably be about 45 minutes walking through the week 10 slate. I will go basically not position by position, but in a sense, it's position by position. But I'm going to go through the process that I went through this week in breaking down this slate on my end without any external noise. Again, same as two weeks ago, we will be going through the DraftKings app. If you are listening live, if you are listening delayed, whatever, I recommend that you open the DraftKings app and go through this with me. That's one of the things that Matthew Petrich did two weeks ago. Again, that doesn't mean that you're going to go get a quarter million dollar win this weekend, but taking these small steps to kind of help you get your feet under you on these things can be extremely valuable because a lot of times it's these little things that set us apart from the field. It's these little plays that we find on our own or the conviction that we have on our own that sets us apart from the field. So if you will, open up the DraftKings app. And what we are going to do is start at the quarterback position and go game by game. Now, I want you to, as much as you can, ignore pricing at this point. And what I mean by that is we're not necessarily thinking about how a whole roster comes together. Now, we will conclude this by putting together an initial roster, which is something I like to do when I'm going through this process myself. But ignore pricing insofar as thinking about, well, I want to play this guy because he's underpriced, or I want to play this guy, or I want to avoid this guy because he's overpriced. We're, we're thinking more about the slate. Again, we want to take a funnel, like think about a funnel, how it starts out broad at the top and then goes down narrower and narrower as you get down to the bottom. So think of Saturday and Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday morning as the bottom of the funnel. And right now we're more at the top of the funnel. And what we're trying to do is get a sense of this slate as a whole how different positions stack up against one another, what the different games look like, what we can see in these different games that we want to be paying attention to. Now, I am going to form an initial list, and I'm going to do this as a single entry player. As we saw two weeks ago, that initial list is not necessarily the final list. I probably had 70%, 80% overlap between what we came up with in this inner circle segment two weeks ago and what was on the player grid at the end of the week. There were some players that got removed, some players that got added based on additional research. But we want to get our foundation under us, be willing to be wrong on some things, right? Maybe find some information throughout the week that sways our thoughts one way or another on some of these spots, but be willing to be wrong on some things, but get our foundation under us so that we have kind of our head on and we know, okay, here's the shape of the slate. Here's how I see different games potentially playing out. Here's how things might come together for my rosters this week. And here's how I expect the field to be thinking in any spots where we see that along the way. So same as two weeks ago, the first thing I'm going to do is go game by game at the quarterback position. But I'm not thinking about quarterbacks so much as I'm thinking about passing 
attacks. Again, I'm also not making any final decisions yet on who's going on my roster, but I do want to get a sense of what's available in different price ranges to kind of have a sense of what we're working with on this particular slate. So the first thing I'm going to do is go game by game. I'm in the DraftKings app, so I'll go in order that the... Um, that the games are listed in the app. If you're in the app, when you click on each game, it highlights only players from that game. If you're on the desktop, you have to click. So the first game is Buffalo and the Jets. You would have to click on Buffalo and the Jets, and then it would just highlight players from those two teams. And then you'll click off of those and go to the next game. But this kind of helps us to see just one game at a time and not get overwhelmed trying to make too many decisions at once. Again, there's so much we have to work through on an NFL week, on a given slate, that if we can break things down into smaller pieces, that can help us to sort of get our answers in each little spot instead of trying to answer 10 spots at once. So I'm going to go through each game relatively quickly and just get initial thoughts out. And then I'll go through it again and kind of think deeper into each spot if you want to follow along with me. Buffalo at the Jets. So my first thought here is... Obviously, Josh Allen has one of the highest ceilings on the slate. The next thought is that the Jaguars basically followed the same blueprint that teams have been following against the Chiefs, two high safeties, force the Bills to work underneath and see if you can slow them down as a result. It's unlikely that the Jets slow the Bills down to only six points. But with Robert Sala there, one of the things we've seen with this Jets defense this year is they have performed above their talent level. Now, that's not saying a whole lot because their talent level is so low, but they have been a better defense than the a better defense cohesively than the individual parts would imply that they would be. So that's the first thought here is obviously Josh Allen has enormous ceiling. Next thought is, well, we need him to get to 30 to 40 points, 30 points just to kind of justify putting him on your roster. 40 points in order for him to be the kind of guy who really wins you a tournament. And so we have to also think about, well, can the Jets slow the Bills down enough so that Josh Allen isn't putting up a 40-point game? Those are the initial thoughts here. Next, Tampa and Washington. Tampa has been a goldmine for fantasy this year. They're kind of the only offense that we can bank on continued efficiency and continued passing from what we've seen so far this season. We know that the Washington defense is an attackable defense through the air. Uh, and then we know that the Buccaneers produce pass-heavy game environment because it's so difficult to run against them. Uh, add in Antonio Gibson's continued shin issues. They're coming off the bye. Maybe he's going to be healthier. But an expectation that Washington's going to be passing, the Bucks are going to be passing. Obviously, this spot stands out to us at first glance. We'll talk about it more deeply as we go through this the second time. Atlanta at Dallas. It's interesting that Matt Ryan obviously had that really bad game, the first game without Calvin Ridley, 146 passing yards against that Carolina pass defense that's been pretty good all season. But last week, 343 passing yards, two passing touchdowns, a rushing touchdown. And Matt Ryan has been producing at a decently high level this year. Let's just take his last five games, 343 yards then 146 in that bad game, 336 yards, 342 yards, 283 yards. All interesting things to note coming into this spot where we would expect that Atlanta will have to be passing against Dallas, who should get back on track in a matchup against Atlanta after their rough game against Denver. Those are my initial thoughts here. New Orleans at Tennessee. Now, this is an interesting one because the Titans' offensive identity 
has been built around the fact that they have Derrick Henry. But we really shouldn't expect the Titans, right? They're, they're actually built around the fact that they have Derrick Henry. And so we shouldn't expect them to suddenly turn super pass heavy. A lot of times in this matchup against the Saints and a team that's lost their top running back, our first thought would be, boy, they're probably going to go pass heavy here. It's so tough to run against the Saints. This team's missing their elite running back. So we would expect them to go more pass heavy. But with this particular team and what they've shown over the years, what's actually likeliest is that they continue to play kind of similar to the way that they've been playing. And if we look through Ryan Tannehill's game logs, if you're on the app, you can just click on his face and you can see his game logs. If you're on the desktop, you click on his name and you can pull up his game log. 143 passing yards, 265, 270, 216, 197, 298, 197. Only one game all year over 300 passing yards. And that's kind of in line with what we typically expect from Ryan Tannehill. So the next thing we have to think about is what are the Saints going to do? Well, the Saints, the Titans, we know they've been tougher against the run than they are against the pass. But the Saints are still going to keep running their offense. They're going to try to run the ball. They're going to focus on short passes. Look at Trevor Simeon this last week. He had, as we would expect, 41 pass attempts and only 249 passing yards. That's indicative of the type of offense that the, that the Saints are running. And so it's kind of an interesting spot. This is typically... Uh, I would actually go into this type of depth the second time through, which is where I kind of came to these conclusions. So we're jumping the gun a little bit early here, but an interesting spot to kind of think through not just what the matchup is, but what the teams are like. And that's one of our advantages in this is there are a lot of things we're going to pick up from over-unders and implied team totals and projections and all that. But when we can find the little things that kind of give us an edge over those elements, and it's not about micro matchups. It's not about this wide receiver versus this cornerback. It's typically about macro matchups and coaching decisions. And that's always been what's given us our bigger edge over the projection system. People isn't focusing so deeply on individual matchups, but focusing more on macro matchups, game environment and game environment expectations based on how these two teams operate and what each coaching staff is likeliest to do. So that, those are my initial thoughts on New Orleans and Tennessee. Jacksonville at Indianapolis. It'll be interesting to see if people overreact to the performance from the Jacksonville defense, but that's not something that they should be able to replicate in this spot against Indianapolis. Indianapolis, a team that's much more balanced, will run the ball a lot more than the Bills and don't rely on deep passing nearly as much. What's interesting in this spot is that we have the Colts are also a team that slows down the run and is attackable through the air. So we would expect the Colts to be playing with a lead in this one. We would expect them to be balanced in this one. Carson Wentz, who, by the way, has had a much better season than it's sexy or trendy to talk about. 17 touchdown passes, only three interceptions on the year. And from a fantasy perspective, 24.2 points last week. 20.3 the week before, 21.3 the week before, 17 the week before, 26.6 the week before. I mean, these are really solid fantasy scores. The only game below 17 points was the one against Tennessee where Carson Wentz couldn't move in the pocket and was throwing the ball at offensive linemen's feet as soon as the pressure got anywhere close to him because he had two sprained ankles. So again, understanding the context of how, how scoring was created is important as well. So we should expect the 
Colts, who again, they don't throw the ball at, at heavy volume when they don't have to. 30 attempts last week, uh, 26 attempts two weeks ago, 20 attempts the week before that, 35, 32. So unless they're in a spot where they're being forced to pass, they're not going to pass super heavily. We should expect a balanced approach here, but we should expect the Jaguars to have to be passing if they're falling behind and needing to keep pace with Indianapolis, which creates a really interesting spot to, again, we don't have to make any decisions yet, but to start thinking about, hey, where can we find fantasy goodness from this game. What wins us tournaments? Either game environments where both teams combine for a bunch of points, individual teams that score 30 plus or optimally 40 plus, or teams with concentrated distribution of touches and multiple players or one player who can put up 30 plus DraftKings points. So we want to be looking for those types of things. And this is the type of spot that kind of stands out as potentially viable. What's also interesting about going game by game like this is we can start to get a sense of where things stack up, right? Like how many viable games are there? So let's move, move to this next game, Detroit at Pittsburgh. Well, Pittsburgh, this is interesting, has zero games this year in which the combined total has gone above 46 points. I think they have a game of 46 points, 44 points, two games of 43, and then everything else is below 40 combined points. That not only means that this Steelers defense is still capable of preventing opponents from scoring, but it also means that the Steelers offense has been incapable of producing big scoring themselves. Detroit, we know they don't have a lot of talent. They play extremely hard and they've given some teams a tough time. Uh, they held the Rams to quote only 28 points in a game where they gave the Rams a run for their money right down to the wire. They held Minnesota to only 19 points. They held Baltimore to only 19 points. Obviously, other teams have gone for 35 plus, but it wouldn't be surprising if Steelers and Lions end up being lower scoring. Now, again, all of this is without looking at the over-under. I'm guessing that the over-under in this game is probably around 44 to 45 and a half. That's shut off the top of my head. But again, this is the sort of spot where if the over-under is higher, we can think about, well, do we really think that the chances of the Steelers putting up a bunch of points, given the way that they play, given the fact that Roethlisberger frequently throws 35 to 40 passes and under 250 passing yards, do we really think that the chances are that high of this game blowing up? And when we talk about upside comes from volume, big plays, and touchdowns. Well, if the touchdown component isn't there for an offense as a whole, it's harder for it to be there for individual players. Again, just extra things to keep in mind as we go through the slate, as we get a sense of what the slate offers us. Next, we have Cleveland at New England, which obviously is going to stand out as one of the least appealing fantasy games. The Browns passing attack is rarely targetable for us. The Patriots offense is rarely targetable for us. The interesting spot here will be Nick Chubb going on the COVID list. And if Kareem Hunt does not come back yet, he was on a four to six week timetable. And I think we're heading into week four right now of that four to six week timetable. So if Kareem Hunt does not come back and if Nick Chubb is still out, Dearness Johnston, Dearness Johnson, who's only 4,700, would obviously be very interesting in this spot. But overview of this game, we just assume it's going to be unappealing. Next, we have Minnesota at the Chargers. The Chargers are a run funnel defense. Defense. They're extremely difficult to pass against there. Is that the Chargers can post a big game through the air? The Chargers prefer to pass, and they can post a big game through the air against this Vikings defense. What's also interesting, Mike Williams has two huge games this year, right? Both of those came in huge Justin Herbert games. 
Keenan Allen, we know, needs heavy volume in order to post a big game himself. So basically, what we're looking at here is a game in which stacks are going to make more sense than one-offs. If you're going to bet on Mike Williams, you're basically betting on Justin Herbert having a big game. In order for Mike Williams and Justin Herbert to have a big game, well, that would require the Vikings to be keeping pace and the Vikings to be breaking out of their running shell and passing. Or you could build it in such a way that you say, okay, well, Dalvin Cook puts the Vikings up by a bunch, and then Herbert and Mike Williams come back from behind and put up a bunch of points. But there has to be some sort of stack from this game in order for it to make more sense than just saying, hey, here's Mike Williams, here's Justin Jefferson, because the pieces from this game are going to work together a lot more than they're going to work individually. Again, Building in a bubble, going game by game sort of helps us to see these things from the front end of the week and understand how we can attack individual games as a result in order to build optimal rosters that give us our best paths for first place. Carolina at Arizona is the next one. A lot of moving parts here with Kyler Murray's ankle, with Sam Darnold. Um, but one, one of the things that we know is that the Panthers defense has played well. The Arizona passing attack spreads the ball around such that it's rare that an individual Arizona pass catcher puts up a score that you would be looking for at their price tag. So basically what we're looking at is can Kyler Murray put up a huge game against this tough pass defense when he's unlikely to be running a bunch? Uh, the answer is probably no. And can an individual Arizona pass catcher be bet on with a high level of confidence? Typically, no. That doesn't mean we want to cross this game off our list, but again, just getting a sense of what's out there. And then obviously the Panthers offense is not an offense that we felt great about targeting for several weeks now, and the Arizona defense is not a defense we typically attack. Next, we have Philadelphia at Denver. The game here, as far as how each team is going to play, will probably depend on how well the Eagles' offense does. We know that the Broncos would prefer to be balanced and leaning toward the run. We know that teams have tilted toward the run against Philadelphia because Philadelphia invites teams to run, invites teams to throw short passes, and prevents them from throwing downfield. So if the Broncos are in control of this game, we probably see a very balanced attack with the rushing workload split between Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon. If the Eagles can take a lead, then the Broncos passing attack can become much more viable. So again, thinking about how would we bet on this game? What could break this game open? Well, some big plays from Devontae Smith could break this game open. And so then you start thinking about, okay, if I want to bet on pieces of the Broncos passing attack, I probably want to do so on a roster that bets on the Eagles, forcing the Broncos to open things up. Next game, last game is Seattle at Green Bay. And we've actually gone deeper into most of these games than uh, I did on my first pass through. So we're kind of covering both pass throughs right now. And then I'll go through and, and talk to you guys about which players I kind of isolated on my second pass through. Uh, Seattle at Green Bay. The I'm not focused on wide receivers yet. I'm focused on passing attacks. So teams where I could take the quarterback and one or two pass catchers and feel like that's a solid way to build. When we know that the, we're going to assume that Aaron Rodgers is coming back. He should be able to be cleared by Saturday. So as long as he gets cleared, he should be back by Sunday. Russell Wilson is practicing. So we're going to expect that these guys are back, but we also know, right? Like they're, they're both priced around seven K 
and they're both averaging about 20 points per game because of the way that their offenses are run. The Packers are a low-volume attack, balanced attack. It's just rare for Rodgers to put up a huge game through the air right now. In fact, his stats are pretty much identical to Carson Wentz, who is quite a bit less expensive. Uh, Russell Wilson, same thing. The Seahawks are going to run the ball, kind of play for the fourth quarter, and not unleash Russ until deeper into the game, more often than not. This goes back to where we talked about knowing what type of tournament you're playing in. If you are playing in a contest with 500 or fewer entries, there is really no need for you to move beyond what you think are the sharpest plays as long as you're still putting together a unique roster. One of the best things you can do in smaller field tournaments is build really sharp rosters and wait for others to make mistakes because they inevitably will. As you get into contests of 5,000 entries, you could start considering Rodgers or Russell Wilson a little bit more. Because what's the story there? The story there is both of these teams have explosive pieces. And if one of these teams puts up some big points early, that could really open up this game. If you're in a tournament of 30,000 entries, 50,000 entries, 200,000 entries, then you get to the point where you can say, man, if nobody's on Russell Wilson, he's the kind of guy who can go for 35 plus points. Russell Wilson plus Tyler Lockett, because Tyler Lockett can put up these 40 to 50 point games and people don't go to him because when he doesn't get those 40 to 50 point games, he gets seven point games, eight point games. Everybody goes to DK Metcalf because he's more in like the 17 to 26 point range. When he misses, he doesn't miss as hard as Lockett. But when he hits, look across their game logs the last two seasons. When Metcalf hits, it, it doesn't come anywhere close to when Lockett hits. Metcalf has one, one huge game in his career. And in that time span, Lockett has, I don't know, five or six huge slate-breaking games. The problem with Lockett is when he misses, he misses so much harder. So think about those things as well as you get into larger field play. When you're in a small field contest, there's no need to take on the added risk of a Russell Wilson plus Tyler Lockett stack. But as you get into larger field play and you're looking at ownership projections and Russ is predicted at 3%, Lockett's at 2%, 3%, 4%, whatever it might be, and you know that their combined ownership is going to be under that mark. Well, are they going to go for a big, let's say you, you project their combined ownership at 2%. Are they going to go for a huge game more than once every 50 games? Oh, absolutely. They're playing the Packers. They're going to have to score points in this one. So that's where you start thinking, okay, where do I embrace a little bit more risk? Where am I even more willing to lose? Because cashing doesn't matter. Now, as you get into bankroll building contests, you can position yourself, as we've talked about for years, to cash and to get first place by building around really sharp plays across the board. So that's kind of, again, that discussion of what type of contest are you building for? What do you want to be thinking about as a result of those contests? Okay, so rather than going through all 11 of these games again, I am going to tell you the plays that I pulled out as I went through these the second time based on kind of my deeper dive into each of these spots, which we kind of hit on on most of them. So nothing from Buffalo and the Jets as far as passing attacks. I decided to leave Josh Allen out because I need Josh Allen. I need to be able to justify Josh Allen being a better play than this next guy. Now, again, I'm not making final decisions yet. We can go throughout the week. I could read the NFL Edge, do my additional research, write up my interpretations, build the player grid, and find that Josh Allen's my number one quarterback. I don't have to make initial or final decisions right now. I'm just getting my foundation built of how I see the slate. This is important to remember because it's easy to get on your early week thoughts and then refuse to let go of them. But what we're trying to do is 
build a structure, build a foundation, and then build off of that. And if we make changes that lose us money, that's okay as long as the process was leading us toward higher probability plays. Because over time, changing our foundation a little bit over time to get to the sharpest plays is going to make us more money. Maybe on the small sample size of one week, you move off of something that would have won you money that week. But over time, that's going to put you in better position. So on my initial pass through, Josh Allen's not on my list because I'm thinking, well, they're probably going to blow out the Jets and the Jets are probably going to try to force him to work underneath. And so that limits his chance of putting up a 35 plus point game. And he's priced right around Tom Brady, who we know is going to be passing the ball. What we also know is Antonio Brown's expected to be out again this week. And Rob Gronkowski is probably still going to be out. So we have this concentrated distribution of touches between Godwin and Evans. One of them 6,900, one of them 7,100. That's 14K in combined salary. That means they would need to score 56 combined points to keep you on a 200-point pace. Their last two games without Antonio Brown and with Gronk missing or hobbled, Antonio Brown and Chris Godwin combined to average 52 points per game. That includes the game in which Mike Evans put up hardly any points because Marshawn Lattimore was shadowing him. One game they combined for over 60, the other game they combined for 40-something, and that puts them at 52 combined points per game across their last two games. So Godwin Evans is also something I'm going to be thinking about from the front end of the week as far as a player block. That was like last week. Last week, Albert Okwe... Ah, I nailed it earlier. Uh, uh, Albert, Albert O. <laughs> um, I nailed it on my podcast with Scott. Um, Albert O and Dallas Goddard and some of these other tight ends that were appealing. Uh, Darren Waller, right? There were plenty of places you could go at tight end this last week. Tyler Conklin. But when Tua was expected to start for the Dolphins, there was this thought for me of why guess on an individual tight end when Waddle and Gusecki have averaged 44 points per game in their last two contests against soft teams with Tua under center. No Devontae Parker, uh, Preston Williams in the doghouse. We know this team passes a lot. And so I don't need to guess which tight end to go to if I can just take a guaranteed block of points. Maybe Waddle scores 30 and Gasecki scores 14. Maybe Gasecki scores 26 and Waddle scores 18. But one way or another, these guys are probably going to put up somewhere in the range of 40 points. Now, once Tua was out on Sunday morning, I had to adjust that because I know that Brissett's not going to support them for that many points. But that was the thinking for me this last week is let me just take guaranteed points. Here's another spot where we can look at that, where a lot of people are going to try to decide between Godwin and Evans, but we could say, well, there's a pretty good chance in this spot that they combine for 50 to 60 points. Let me just take both of them and get the points. So from this spot, I wrote down Tommy, Evans, Godwin. I also wrote down Leonard Fournette just because I was thinking about this offense and he stood out to me. And then on the Washington side, I wrote down Heineke, McKissick, McLaurin, and the Washington football tight end. So we know that Washington's likely to have to be passing in this spot. If they're falling behind and passing, we could have a situation where McKissick's on the field more often. Uh, I believe it's four games already this year, maybe three games already this year, where McKissick has been in that 4X salary multiplier range. Not quite the full 4X, but right around that mark. And again, we've talked about how a lot of these higher-priced running backs are not approaching that 4X number as often as they have in the past because of the changing roles. And so finding one of these cheaper guys who can get 4X has a lot of value. So Heineke, McKissick, McLaurin, Washington football, tight end. 
Atlanta and Dallas. Uh, I wrote down that the Cowboys should be able to attack both on the ground and through the air. I also wrote down, remember to be in the habit of questioning everything. So this is a player I alluded to at the top of this podcast, but people kind of get this sense of like this last week, right? Amari Cooper had a huge game after pricing had already been set. So he had a huge game in week eight, but pricing for week nine had already been set. So all of a sudden he looks like this screaming value at 5,700. And we see that he has a 40 point game on his ledger this year where he had, I guess it was a 29 point game, a 30 point game in week eight. And so then it's like, man, how could you not play Amari? What are Amari's targets this year? Let's look at his targets in his last five games with Dak Prescott under center. Five targets, eight targets, six targets, three targets, four targets. That doesn't sound like a player you should be scared to not play. What are CeeDee Lamb's targets in his last five games with Dak? Nine targets, nice. 11 targets, nice. Six targets, five targets, three targets. At his price tag, that doesn't sound like the type of player you should be scared to not play. But what's interesting is because of the hype around Amari and the fact that he just had a big game, right? These are the things we need to separate in our minds. We need to separate what just happened last week and what everybody's talking about from the reality of the situation. I had one Amari roster this last week, and I had to basically force myself to play him because I so badly didn't want to play him. And I played him because it was a roster with Teddy Bridgewater and Albert O and Jerry Judy. And I wanted to play Emmanuel Sanders at 5,600, but I just couldn't justify it when Amari tied together that story so much better, obviously being in the same game as those guys. And so being able to say, look, sure, this guy had a big game. He can have a big game again, but let's separate what just happened from the bigger picture and what we know about this offense as a whole. So Cowboys should be able to attack both on the ground and through the air. Dak is interesting. Amari and CD are interesting. The Falcons passing attack is interesting, but nothing really is standing out to me from this game the way that some of these other games are. New Orleans at Tennessee, nothing that I'm writing down from this high-level passing attack view. Jacksonville at Indianapolis, I wrote down Carson Wentz, Jonathan Taylor, Michael Pittman, Jamal Agnew, and Dan Arnold. Agnew and Arnold have 34 combined targets their last two games. Agnew costs 4,500. Arnold costs 3,500. So think about 17 targets a game from these two guys. Both guys are very interesting in this offense, in a spot where we would expect the Colts to be scoring points, the Jags to be getting slowed down on the ground by the Colts' excellent run defense, and the Jags to eventually have to pass, which should keep these uh, this volume intact for the Jaguars' pass game pieces. Detroit at Pittsburgh. Uh, again, uh, Pittsburgh's highest scoring game was 46 points all season long. So this is not a game that I'm writing down at the front end of the week. Cleveland at New England, nothing from this one. Minnesota at the Chargers. Uh, again, some interesting thoughts here in terms of how to play this game. Not so much what I think is going to happen, but how would the pieces be put together that tells a cohesive story? Thinking about how the Chargers like to play, how the Vikings are likeliest to start out attacking this game, and what would be required for Mike Williams or Keenan Allen to have a huge game and Justin Herbert to be there with them is a game in which Minnesota is putting up points, keeping all of that in mind. Uh, Carolina at Arizona, nothing written down from this game for me. Uh, Philadelphia at Denver, we already talked about my thoughts on this one. Nothing written down on this one. 
Seattle at Green Bay, nothing high level from the passing attacks written down on this one. So what that gives me at this point is basically the Bucks passing attack, the Washington passing attack, the Colts passing attack and their running back, and some interesting thoughts on ways to play some of these other games. And that's it. That's what I have written down right now. Now, one of the things I love to do is find a position where I can sort of narrow my focus. So you've actually seen that in the player grid uh, at least two of the last three weeks where I had an extremely narrow running back pool. So the passing attack pool was larger, but the running back pool was much smaller. As of right now for week 10, as you see, I have a very small passing attack pool. But let's get over to running back. And we'll go through this a little bit quickly because I want to make sure we have time to get to questions. But let's look at running back. And rather than going game by game, as I do in my bubble build, I want to actually just like, let's speed this up a little bit by highlighting what we have this week, a really interesting week. Because we've spent all this time talking about how the high-priced running backs aren't producing the way that they did in the past. But all of a sudden this week, we have Christian McCaffrey, who could be back in a full-time role. Not a great spot against Arizona. Not a great spot with how broken this offense is right now. Not a great spot when we talk about touchdowns are part of upside. If Carolina can only score two touchdowns in this game, it's going to be hard for Christian McCaffrey to post a big game through touchdowns. But Christian McCaffrey has to be considered when he's only 8,400 and is probably back to his full-time role. Alvin Kamara is still a guy who we have to consider as a player who can score two to three touchdowns in any given week. Not obviously the best play from the way he's being used and the fact that they don't love passing the ball. They don't have to right now. But Alvin Kamara, 8,200 is another guy we have to consider. Jonathan Taylor, 37 points his last game, 21.2 before that, 22 before that, 31.8 before that, 34.9 before that, 23.4 before that. So his worst game in his last six is 21.2 DraftKings points. Two games over 30 points. The volume is not great, but sometimes we have to throw volume out of the window when we're just talking about tournaments. We're talking about ceiling. We're talking about where can we get the most points? Well, Jonathan Taylor against Jacksonville absolutely has to be considered. Dalvin Cook against the Chargers. Dalvin Cook near the top of the league in carries inside the 10, inside the five, only two touchdowns all season. 17 touchdowns last year in 14 games. Two touchdowns this year in, what is that, six games that he's played so far. So touchdown regression is going to come. The matchup is great against the Chargers. Dalvin Cook, another guy we have to consider. Najee Harris, 7,900 against Detroit. The chance of the Steelers putting up a bunch of touchdowns aren't particularly high, but the chance of Najee Harris leading all running backs in touches, well, those chances are pretty high. Najee Harris, 7,900, somebody we have to consider. Austin Eckler should get right back to being heavily involved once again. Kind of disappointed this last week. The passing role was down a little bit, but there's no reason to expect that to continue, right? Zero targets in week one, nine targets the next week, six the next week, five, five, seven, ten. Three targets last week. Let's not overrate last week's little blip on the radar of three targets when every other game this year, it's five plus targets. We have that game of nine targets, a game of 10 targets, a game of seven targets, a game of six and two games of five. So Austin Eckler, 7,900, somebody we have to consider or 7,600. And if we go over to wide receiver, and I like to do this at this point is like, wow, here's a bunch of high priced running backs who can get up to 30 points. What does wide receiver look like? Well, Devontae Adams is going to have probably have Aaron Rodgers back. So that's interesting. AJ Brown at 7,800 is extremely overpriced for his floor and ceiling. I'll say that. When you talk about Devontae Adams being able to put up 40 to 50 points, 
When Tyree Kill is priced up here, he can do that. But A.J. Brown is is interesting. Uh, Jefferson is a tough sell against the Chargers compared to what we just talked about at running back. Terry McLaurin is interesting, except that the Bucs force a lot of short passes. So you need the volume to really be there. And then we get to, you know, Diggs, who hasn't topped 24 points this year. We get to CeeDee Lamb, who we just talked about. The volume is not really there for this price tag. We get to Keenan Allen, who needs like 15 to 19 targets to have a huge game. And the Bucs wide receivers, who we already talked about. And so really running back is where it's like, man, there's some 30-point scores waiting here. Not all of these running backs we talked about are going to score 30 points, but Jonathan Taylor, Najee Harris, Dalvin Cook, Austin Eckler, Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara, it's likely that two of these guys score 30 points, and it's a lot less likely that two of the high-priced wide receivers score 30 points, or even one of the high-priced wide receivers. So we already know that high-priced running back is a place where our attention is likely to be this week. Then we go down to the lower-priced running backs. We have Singletary with Zach Moss potentially out with a concussion. Now, we know that the Bills don't really involve their running backs, but Singletary plus Moss has been a pretty solid producer this year. I believe it's over 20 points per game between the two. And so if Singletary takes on most of that role, he actually becomes kind of interesting as a way to save salary. Leonard Fournette at, I think it's 6K, maybe it's 6,100. Is obviously, uh, 6,100 is obviously very interesting against Washington. J.D. McKissick, we already talked about. Cordero Patterson is interesting. And Dernis Johnson, if he ends up in this role, is also interesting. So we have 11 running backs. I went through all 11 games that's basically 22 backfields. And with the number of backfields this year that are split backfield, that's a shocking number of running backs to come up with from 22 teams total. 11 running backs who are already on my list at the front end of this week. So what I see at this point is that I'm likeliest to approach this week as a week in which I sort of bet heavily on the passing attacks I trust the most, especially if I feel there are some guaranteed points, it's harder to get guaranteed points at wide receiver. So I already talked about Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. If there are guaranteed points, then I'm even more likely to just kind of focus on that narrow pool of wide receivers. And if some wide receivers not score those guys, that's fine. Because if I'm playing smaller field tournaments, guaranteed points is golden. That's what I want, right? I'm good. And now I've got this broader pool of running backs. The next thing I do is, and again, I'll do this more quickly than actually going game by game because I want to make sure we have time for questions. But I go game by game and I look at any of the wide receivers that I might have overlooked in the game-focused elements. So at the higher ends of the price range, the only one standing out to me who didn't make my list from all of that is Devontae Adams. I could add A.J. Brown to the list. I probably won't add him to my list as uh, myself because if I'm going to this high-priced range, I'd rather go to the running backs or Devontae Adams. Again, that can change throughout the week. McLaurin's already listed in my uh, stacks of the Bucks and Washington game, and the Bucks wide receivers are already listed. Uh, the only other one I want to highlight is Deontay Johnson. And again, this is mostly a game environment setup where I'm saying I have a hard time seeing Deontay Johnson putting up 36 points or like the type of score that would bury me for not having him, which is why he doesn't make the cut. And as we talked about, if we're branching into larger field tournaments, then we start thinking a little bit more about, hey, maybe DK Metcalf, maybe Mike Williams plus Justin Herbert. That's not what I want to bet on in a 500 entry tournament. But maybe if I'm if I'm competing against more rosters, if I'm wanting to think even more outside the box, right, still targeting 200 plus points. But what's a stack that people might not be on, or that I can build around better than the field. If I know that Mike Williams, a big game from him, almost certainly means a big game from Herbert, and that requires a big game from somebody on the Vikings, well, now that gives me a way to build around that's going to be different from what the field is doing and give me a big path to first place. So Devontae Adams is the only wide receiver I'm adding 
right now that's not in the initial group from the very narrow pool of passing attacks that I'm looking at at the moment. At the lower ends of the price range, there are five guys I've added. Michael Gallup, who should be back this week, obviously introduces plenty of guesswork because then that's another viable target, right? Pollard's going to get touches. Zeke's going to get touches. Schultz is going to get targets. Gallup's going to get targets. Amari's going to get targets. CeeDee Lamb's going to get targets. And they're going to throw some passes to guys that the other team just isn't expecting them to throw passes to. So Gallup, plenty of upside. Also, question marks, but we deal with that at the lower end of the price range. Russell Gage, I listed just because he's the alpha receiver in this Falcons passing attack in a game where they should have to be passing as the game moves along. Deontay Harris, who kind of nobody really pays attention to, but he's getting volume and he has big play upside. He's priced at only 4K. So again, somebody just to think about. Jamal Agnew, who we already isolated above, and then Marquez Valdez-Scantling in this Packers attack where there was all this offseason hype about him, about his role expanding, about how great his rapport was with Aaron Rodgers. And then he had kind of a few games where the, the volume was there, and then he got hurt, and then Rodgers was out last week, and all of a sudden we get this game where they're back together, right? So MVS, three games, yet with Rodgers, eight targets, four targets, four targets. Well, at only 3,500, if he gets a six-target game with a bunch of downfield work against the Seahawks, and we know that MVS on six targets can go four catches for 120 yards and a touchdown, he becomes very interesting as well at 3,500. And so that's kind of my list. And so then the next thing that I do from there is I say, okay, let me build an initial roster. Now, this initial roster, two weeks ago, we built an initial roster and I said, don't use this because I might actually end up using it. Uh, and I kind of moved in a different direction that week. This week, I'll say the same thing. And I might really just end up here. So the first thing that I do on this roster, you could probably guess, is I put Mike Evans and Chris Godwin on together. Because what I'm going to say there is, hey, I kind of think that we can get 50 combined points from these guys, maybe as many as 60. And I think that most people are going to be trying to pick between one and the other. Now, both of these guys are probably going to be about 15 to 20% owned, maybe even higher than that. So there's certainly going to be a chunk of the field that's playing these two guys together. This isn't my separator. This isn't what gets me to first place. But combined, these guys are maybe 4% owned, 5% owned. And so I can just take the, quote, guaranteed points from these guys. Now, nothing's guaranteed in football, but high probability points. So what I call a block of guaranteed points from these two guys, play them together, know that I'm getting lower ownership than if I played them individually and more certainty than if I played them individually. This works even in large field tournaments because these guys can go for 60, 65 points, right? They can go well above their 4X salary multiplier, keep you on pace for 225, even 250 points. No reason to shy away from playing these guys together in any contest type. Now, one would think that my next step would be to put Tom Brady on this roster. But my next step is to look at this overview of the slate that I've built and recognize I would love to get two high-priced running backs on this roster. So I don't need to overthink exactly who those running backs are just yet. I just need to get a sense of if that's possible without sacrificing ceiling in other spots. I'm okay sacrificing some floor in other spots because I'm playing for first place and floor doesn't really matter. It matters for helping us cash. But if you're going to get down to a cheaper guy and he still gives you ceiling, that's good enough for me. So I went ahead and put Jonathan Taylor 
and Dalvin Cook on this roster, which now gives me Dalvin Cook, Jonathan Taylor, Mike Evans, and Chris Godwin. So I'm expecting, and this is kind of how I like to do this too, is let me think about total points that I'm reasonably projecting. So if I say Evans and Godwin, 50 to 55 points, and if I'm taking an expensive running back, I always, always and only want to roster them if I think they can get 30 or more points. So I'll say Dalvin Cook, 30 points, Jonathan Taylor, 30 points. I could have put on Kamara. I could have put on Eckler. I could have put on Christian McCaffrey. These are the two guys I chose to put on this roster. So now we're looking at, okay, 110, 115 points if things break our way. Also knowing that Dalvin and Jonathan Taylor could both go for 35 to 40. So we're in good shape here from a starting point with high probability bets. So now the question is, we've got 3,900 in salary left over, uh, basically 4,000 in salary left over per position. So we have to think about, are we able to do this without messing up the rest of the roster? So one of the first places that we want to think about that we can save salary is tight end. And we already highlighted Dan Arnold. So the next thing I want to do is go down and say, okay, what's Dan Arnold's salary? Dan Arnold's salary is only 3,500. Let me go ahead and throw him on here. Because... He's featured in this offense, which is rare for a tight end. Seven targets last week, 10 targets the week before, and his first game with Jacksonville, where he only had two days to practice with them, five targets. So if we can take a $3,500 tight end, who not only is getting six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 targets in most reasonable scenarios for this game, we're also betting on Jonathan Taylor, which means we're betting on the Colts playing with the lead, putting up points. And the Jaguars having to pass in response. So that helps this bet on Arnold getting volume. But on top of all that, Arnold isn't just seeing the four-yard downfield targets. He's seeing actual targets up the seam. He's seeing targets 10 yards downfield, 15 yards downfield, which gives him the type of upside that's, you know, like last week, four catches for 60 yards. The week before that, eight catches for 68 yards. We see a lot of tight ends who if they got eight catches, it would be 35 yards, 40 yards. So somebody like this who can actually put together the yards and the receptions with touchdown upside is really interesting at 3,500. And I don't feel like I'm sacrificing a whole lot. Now, again, I have to dig deeper as we move into the week, but I don't think that TJ Hawkinson against in a tough matchup against Pittsburgh is a huge favorite to outproduce Dan Arnold, even though he costs 1,800 more right? 11 targets, nine targets, 11 targets. But before that, three, eight, two, nine, 11. So Hawkinson's going to get a couple more targets than Arnold most weeks, but that's not a huge separator. Dalton Schultz. Well, Dalton Schultz is going to get five targets, seven targets, six targets, eight targets, eight targets, a better offense, but not a better target projection, better red zone role, but not a better target projection. Dallas Goddard, we can go down this list, right? A bunch of guys who maybe they can get up over 20, but in most weeks they're going to get 10, 12, 15 points. And I can get that from Dan Arnold at 3,500. So again, kind of assess that. I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything there. And now we have 4,100 left per position. Now we need to think about quarterback. What is the sharpest way? We're not playing Tom Brady, right? So what's the sharpest way to take advantage of this bet on Mike Evans and Chris Godwin? I'm going to throw Taylor Heineke on this roster. And I'm going to see how this works out, if this still positions us to get upside across the board. Now, first, I want to examine Heineke's game log and see, am I sacrificing too much, right? Like, do I still have upside on this roster? Well, he costs 5,400. He has a 22.2 point game, a 27.9 point game, a 23.4 point game, a 24 point game. Brady 
pretty much is putting up 25 to 30, sometimes 32 points. So if I can get 20, if basically if Evans and Godwin have a huge game, it increases the chances of Washington throwing, of the Bucks kind of playing back a little bit, of Heineke putting up a game in response. And so if Brady can put up 30 points, well, maybe Heineke can put up 24, 25 points for less in salary and basically tie up this bet. Now, I know I'm not going to be able to get to McLaurin on this roster, but what is a bet that makes sense here? Well, we already highlighted J.D. McKissick, and now if we add McKissick to this roster, we start really feeling like we're separating ourselves from the field. Sure, people will have Mike Evans, people have Chris Godwin, people will even have them together. But how many people will have them together and not have Tom Brady? How many people will have them together and also have two high-priced running backs? How many people will have them together with Heineke? And how many people with Heineke have McKissick as the stacking partner? Now, we don't have to worry about ownership anymore. We already have a very different roster. Taylor Heineke and J.D. McKissick looped in with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and two high-priced running backs at Dalvin Cook and Jonathan Taylor. We have 2,900 in salary left over. So we need to think about, can we do this without sacrificing upside? Well, who is the guy at wide receiver who could get us there without sacrificing upside? Well, we already talked about Marquez Valdez-Scantling at 3,500. We talked about the fact that he can go for four catches for 120 yards and a touchdown. That's 25 DraftKings points right there if he were to hit that line. In a matchup against Seattle, which can be attacked downfield, in a matchup against Seattle, which will probably try as best as they can to take out Devontae Adams, they'll be fully successful at that. And in a game environment that could end up being back and forth with a lot of scoring in the second half, Marquez Valdez-Scantling becomes very interesting and makes a lot of sense at 3,500. That leaves us with 2,300 left at defense. And we scroll down and see the Vikings at 2,300. I can't tell you how close I was to playing the Vikings at 2,200 last week against the Ravens because if you look at their game logs, even when they give up points, they gave up 34 points to Baltimore last week. They still got 12 defense special teams points. The week before that against Dallas, they put, of course, that was Cooper Rush, but they put up eight defense special teams points. Carolina, they gave up 28 points, but nine defense special teams points. Detroit, nine defense special teams points. Uh, down games against Cleveland and Seattle. Arizona with Kyler, 12 defense special teams points. So Vikings, 2,300. Worst game of the season is four def- or is three defense special teams points. A game of three, a game of four, a game of five. Everything else has been eight and above. They become very interesting down here at 2,300, especially when I already have this Dalvin Cook bet on here where they work well together, right? If the Vikings are having a good game on defense, that increases the chances of the Vikings playing with a lead and Dalvin Cook getting the extra work, hopefully getting the extra touchdowns. And so now I have this roster where I can look across the board and say, well, Marquez Valdez-Gantling, I'm sacrificing a lot of floor, but I'm not sacrificing ceiling. Heineke, I'm sacrificing floor, but I'm not sacrificing point per dollar ceiling. Same thing with McKissick. I'm sacrificing floor, but I can still get 4X. And then all of a sudden, I've got floor and ceiling with these two bucks wideouts and these two expensive running backs. I've got this roster that's very different from what the field is going to have. And so I don't have to worry about individual ownership because I have this very unique build across the board. So again, that might end up being my one roster this week, I might end up with something totally different, but that's how I start up my week is going game by game, getting a high level view of what the passing attacks offer, getting my initial thoughts built off of that, getting a high level view of what the running back position offers, 
getting a sense of how all of that matches up from a roster construction and pricing standpoint. In this particular week, I get to see that, okay, my passing attacks are probably going to be more narrow. Doesn't mean that I'm on the right passing attacks, but if I am on the right ones, I'm on them. Running back is going to be my larger pool, and I have to narrow that down and figure out how I want to put that together. And then I already see some paths to unique builds. Again, might I might end up going in a totally different direction. I might end up pulling in only some of these pieces this week as far as the way that we're putting this roster together. But it gives me a sense at the front end of the week of how I see the week, how I want to attack the week, and what I can build on from my foundation from there. So with that, we are going to wrap up this portion and jump over to the questions. We've got about 30 minutes to hit on questions here. Aaron, take it away. All right. Um, This first question is from Jay McGrath. I've been listening to your roster construction course and use the Deontay Johnson example of someone mispriced for his role last year. As we get to week 10, are there still players you see as underpriced for their role? Yes and no. I think that one of the bigger things is who is not overpriced? Because as we get to this point, people, Michael Pittman is a good example, right? Like people weren't playing him at 5K. Then he has a big game. And when he finally had the big game, people actually were on him that week. But he has the big game and now he's 6,300. Same player, same role. But more people are going to flock to him because he had the big game and because the pricing psychology of that 6,300 price tag tells people, well, this is a good play. Nothing against the Michael Pittman play. As we just walked through my sort of overview, he's one of the guys on my list this week. But kind of understanding when pricing moves up and when people overcommit to those players. And I think that that's an interesting thing that we see is pricing moves up, people overcommit to those players. Now, once ownership rises on a player, DraftKings starts bumping up their price. So one of the unique things that we saw with Deontay last year or with Josh Allen in 2018, where we were, I think it was weeks 12 through 17, maybe it was 13 through 17, but we hammered that Josh Allen play his rookie season. And we were under 2% owned every week. OWS was, we were the only people rostering Josh Allen down the stretch run that year. And because nobody rostered him, even though he kept putting up these 20, 25, 30 point games, because nobody was rostering him, his price continued to not rise. That was the same thing that we saw with Deontay last year, because he, he was like, once everybody kind of turned to him, he got hurt and got hurt like two plays into the game and puts up a zero, right? And then he comes back and people are kind of timid to play him and we get the big game from him again. Um, so yeah, it, once once the big game happens, usually you kind of lose that. So we had Cortland Sutton this year. I'll put Jerry Judy in that pool right now as far as like people were drafting him I believe in like the fourth and fifth rounds of, of drafts this year, best ball in season long, maybe it was like fifth and sixth round. Um, and, you know, people were kind of expecting him to be the type of wide receiver where we would see priced at about 6K. And he's been priced down in the high four, four Ks, the low five Ks. Um, so he's another one who his price should be higher in a few weeks than it is right now. Uh, let's see, we had it with T Higgins last year where he was down in the low four K's and we were saying he'd be mid five K's to low six K's by the end of the season. 
Um, we had it with Michael Carter. We had it with Kadarius Tony. But yeah, it's kind of a lot of times it's like a one week thing. And then that player is gone. And so it's the hard thing is getting on that play when it's still uncomfortable to get on that play. Like I talked about Kadarius Tony the week he was 4K and I had him on four of my six rosters. But I, I get the feeling that most OWS members still didn't pull the trigger on him. I had Michael Carter when we talked about him all week, the week that he was 4,900 two weeks ago, and I had him on both of my rosters or all three of my rosters that week. But I get this the feeling that a lot of OWS members didn't pull the trigger on that play. Now, there's other times that I'm going to be on a cheap play like that and it ends up, it ends up missing, right? Like we're I'm pulling out the ones that hit, but you have to be willing to pull the trigger. Like Deontay was still under 2% owned those weeks when he was under 4,500. And I was talking about him relentlessly on the site. And just like OWS members all rostering him would have pushed his ownership above 2%. And so there's also the element of these plays look obvious in retrospect, but you have to be the one who's willing to pull the trigger on them when they still feel uncomfortable. When it feels like, are we really seeing this right? Like, why is this guy priced so low? Why is nobody on this guy? And one of the things, you know, we talked last week about how chalk gets formed. Well, the guys who form chalk aren't going to be talking about these guys because they're primarily focused on who are the sharpest, most optimal plays from a cash game perspective or from a what we know in the past from these players perspective. And so whether it's a projection system that can't account for them yet, a player like Levitan who's not focused on them because he's focused on cash games. And so why would I worry about a guy like Deontay at 4,200 uh, or a player or somebody like Silva who is talking big picture and talking season long. So basically these guys are always going to feel like the wrong play when we pull the trigger on them. And so the biggest thing is finding them and actually pulling the trigger on them. So I'll be talking about them anytime one of these players comes up, you will hear about them. Uh, it's just being able to pull the trigger on them is the other big part here. Um, but yeah, the only one I, I would say right now that really stands out as off the top of my head as somebody who I, I would say, yeah, a few weeks from now, now they will be priced higher is Jerry Judy. It's highly likely that he's not, you know, 5K uh, in like week 15, 16, but that doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to hit this week, it just means that at some point he's going to show that he's underpriced right now, uh, you know, and, and he'll have a, a bigger week than his price tag indicates he should. All right. Next question from SKD023. I was reading that the Jaguars used a cover two shell scheme against the Bills, which proved to be highly effective. It was similar to what other teams have been using against the Chiefs. Can you expand on the design of the cover two shell and if we should be reevaluating our expectations on these offenses for the rest of the season? So the NFL, well, football is a chess match and it's a game of cat and mouse. And so teams are going to copycat what other teams have been doing. And they'll keep doing that until it doesn't work anymore. So it's up to the offense to adjust. One of the things we saw the 
old Rams, like the original Sean McVay Rams, they were running 11 personnel, which is, you know, three wide receivers, one running back, one tight end. They were running 11 personnel 97% of the time one season. And I think like second highest in the league was like 80% or 78% or something like that. Rams just ran this offense and people couldn't stop it. Belichick came out in the Super Bowl, figured out how to basically completely slow down this Rams defense. I mean, this Rams offense, everybody else started following that blueprint. And then McVay had to adjust over time. So it's up to Brian Dable. It's up to Andy Reid to adjust right now. So the cover two shell is basically you're going to put two safeties deep. Now you can split the cover two down the middle is kind of one of the weak spots, but you're going to put two safeties deep. And basically they are going to keep the ball in front of them and force the opponent to work short. So when you have a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes, or, or, or let's take both these offenses, even like bigger picture, the way they're designed, they're designed not just around the talents of their pass catchers, but also the strength of the arms of Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. So these two offenses and the Rams are really the only teams that do this, where most teams, you either stretch a defense horizontally or vertically. You don't have a lot of teams that can do both. So the Chiefs and Bills can stretch a defense horizontally and vertically. And on top of that, they can stretch them to all four corners. In other words, Mahomes can roll out left and hit a guy down the deep right sideline. Josh Allen can do the same thing. And they're really the only teams, them and the the Rams are the only teams that can strain a defense at all four corners. But what these teams have started to say is, and it's obviously it's more complicated than just like, hey, run out cover two, right? I'm sure these teams are doing a lot more than just that. But the sort of starting point has been, hey, let's just run cover two and let's just say, you you want to strain us at all four corners? Fine. We'll take away these two corners that are most dangerous and we will force you to do everything underneath. We will force you to play like the old Brady Patriots, right? Like march the field drives. And that's not something that these teams are used to doing. So what we should see, I think that the bills will be able to adjust more quickly because the bills have more weapons and more like layers to their weapons, right? Like they can shift Emmanuel Sanders from his downfield role to a more short and intermediate role. They can shift digs from his downfield role to short and intermediate or his intermediate role. They already have Cole Beasley underneath. Uh, when Dawson Knox comes back, they'll have that element as well. Whereas the Chiefs, like they're kind of being forced to use Tyreek Hill as their short piece and their intermediate piece. But then that takes away the strain that he puts on the defense as the deep piece. And so the Chiefs are having a harder time than I think the Bills necessarily will. But yeah, it's it's something that once a defensive scheme proves to work, and all like the layers of what a team might be doing that opponents are seeing on film and trying to copycat the that can keep working for a while like the rams offense got the 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 year when they ran 97 percent 11 personnel i don't remember exactly what it was but i think it was like 14 out of 16 games they scored 30 plus points which at the time seemed normal because they were just doing it every week but that's an absurd level of consistency for scoring 30 plus points in an NFL game. And then all of a sudden the next year it was like they were having a hard time scoring 30 points in any games. And so these things kind of go through cycles. Eventually Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes are going to figure out something like there's nothing that Andy Reid hasn't seen before.
So they're going to figure out something that kind of breaks through what defenses are throwing at them. And then defenses are going to have to adjust again. Same thing with the bills, but yeah, it's definitely something to think about. And especially when players are priced for expected production, people are still rostering Stefan Diggs at like 10, 12, 15% ownership every week. This is the spot where he's going to go nuclear because of this, that, and the other thing. He has one game of like 23.9 points. He's priced at like 7,500. He's going to score 30 points just to hit 4X's salary. He can't even get above 24 points because of the way that they're using him in this offense this year. But everybody kind of clings to what they know from the past. Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, they're still having solid games, but they're priced so high for this Chiefs offense of the past that they're not putting up the scores that you need them to put up. With that said, it can change suddenly, right? So you don't want to overrate the fact that this is happening, but you certainly want to be aware of it. And if the field starts swinging too far the other way and ownership starts coming in really low on these guys, that's where you can start saying, hey, maybe this is the week where they figure things out because they still have the talent. But if the field continues to bet on these offenses, expecting them to blow past their price-based expectations, you can say, well, there's something different going on right now that these people are not accounting for. Let me account for that myself. So yeah, I mean, it's a game of cat and mouse for these NFL teams. And then it should be a game of cat and mouse, a chess match for us as well to understand what our opponents are doing, how much they're underrating or overrating these elements and how we should play off that as a result. So hopefully that kind of gives a big comprehensive answer of how to handle that strategically. All right. This is from Larejo. He's not here right now, but he'll be listening later. With how uncertain the outcomes of many games have been recently, how have you been building for uncertainty in your lineups? So I have been the last few weeks focused more on single entry. And so one of the things, I'll say it like this, two years ago when I was building for the Wildcat and like putting together my weekly process on the podcast and talking to you guys about, you know, here's how I'm building for the Wildcat, which is again, like a 5,000 entry field, uh, but 150 max. And so I was putting in anywhere from like 14 to 19 rosters each week. And my competition was putting in as many as 150. And so one of the ways that I was accounting for uncertainty was building around an offense I liked, but then also accounting for the fact that the points might not come through the players I expected the points to come through. And so then, you know, maybe it was like, hey, I want to focus on the Vikings offense this week. And I want Diggs was Diggs was still on the Vikings at the time. This was 2019. And so it'd be like, well, I want. I think that Diggs is going to hit in this game, but I'm going to do seven Diggs rosters and five Thielen rosters, even though I don't think that Thielen's the one who's going to hit. I'll overlap them on at least one roster. So it's like one roster with Diggs and Thielen, four with Thielen solo, six with Diggs solo, and then throw in like three Dalvin Cook rosters as well. So basically just bet on the offense, treat my my block of 19 rosters as this, you know, big block of rosters. And actually, I think that I just got the math right on there, but put them on like 14 of those 19 rosters to also account for the fact that maybe they don't hit. I expect them to hit, but maybe they don't hit, right? And so basically to say, look, I've got my digs rosters covered with these seven rosters, but also if it's not digs, 
it's probably Thielen. If it's not Thielen or Diggs, it's probably Cook. And maybe I'm wrong on this spot, so let me leave five rosters where I just don't bet on on them. Um, and so that that's one way to account for it. Um, what I'm doing right now is, since I'm building single entry, is as you as you kind of saw with the bubble building process, is if I can get down to what I think is likely to happen. I'm often able to, if I'm separated from the noise, I'm often able to spot all this, all the places where people are overrating their uncertainty. So like last week, for example, Amari Cooper or Zeke Elliott, we were all talking about like, why is everybody on Ezekiel Elliott? Like you get in that bubble, it sounds great, but you step outside of it and it's like, well, he's not, he's not a 20 plus percent owned player. What is everybody thinking here? And so basically recognizing like, I'm avoiding a lot of the uncertainty and just trying to get the most certain things in smaller field play. And then, so those are kind of two ideas of how to do it. The third idea is what I would do personally is I would read articles by this guy named Larejo and pay attention to the spots that he's finding where he's basically able to say, here are game environments that could go bigger or better than people are expecting. Here are individual players that could go bigger or better than people are expecting. Here are some ways to embrace uncertainty on your rosters for big upside because that guy's pretty sharp at finding those things. But yeah, I think that in smaller field play, for me, it's truly identifying who the more certain plays are. And so like this last week for me, Austin Eckler missed, but I was aware that all of like the running back was ugly across the board and Austin Eckler was the one I felt most certain about. And, you know, he was popular, but so were some of these other guys who were way less certain. So my first step was like, Hey, let me take the guy that I feel most certain about. Um, Gusecki and Waddle was going to be my pairing before Tua was out. And I was like, well, literally nobody's on this pairing anyway. And it's extremely certain points. Um, so finding as much certainty as I can, and then kind of, embracing uncertainty where necessary from there. All right. We are actually at a question. So if anybody has a hand to raise, let me know and we can bring you up on stage. And then one kind of announcement here, we had a question from uh, solo who came up, came up with a great idea and uh, begin also um, about a mid-season recap of teams. Um, and I've been talking to Mike a little bit in the background, and I think Mike is going to be putting something together and look for that uh, hopefully next week if schedules align so you guys can uh, get a little bit more detail on the way Mike's seeing things from um, his point of view. Yeah, that'll be awesome to have because, uh, again, one of the two of the things you talked about, one – Teams get better throughout the year. Teams develop throughout the year. Two, the field tends to cling either to off-season narratives or narratives from weeks one and two. And I can't tell you how often it's like week nine or 10, which it is right now, and you can go on Roto World and their blurbs are saying things that are not true about teams, but that were true after week two. And they kind of cling to these early season narratives, which causes everybody else to cling to these early season narratives. And so when we can find these places where we can say, here's what this team is actually doing right now. Here's what this team has actually progressed to right now. Um, that can help us gain an enormous edge on the field in terms of understanding where the certainty lies, where the uncertainty lies and outmaneuvering the field that way. Uh, looks like we are done as always. Massive thanks to you guys for hanging out in here live. Massive thanks to any of you who are listening after the fact. Um, and yeah, it was a lot of fun going through this bubble build process. Again, I wanted to do this part one, part two, obviously 
We took a week away from it last week to talk to Matt Petrich about his huge win, but uh, fun to get back to that this week. And hopefully that helps you guys get a sense of how to get your own feet under your your own foundations for uh, the week and also get you a foundation for this week, week 10. So I will see you back here next week. I will see you on the site throughout the week and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.